This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 18, Revisionist Marxism and Existentialism in Eastern Europe. Today we're going to talk about revisionist Marxism. And today I'm going to kind of move you through the post-war years, through the 1950s and the 1960s, past Stalinism and into post-Stalinist Marxism, into what we call revisionist Marxism. Now, for those of you who are taking classes that deal with an earlier time period, let me just tell you as a footnote, there was an earlier phenomenon called revisionist Marxism that was associated with a kind of Kantian notion of Marxism and Edward Bernstein revisionism from the earlier part of the 20th century. This is not that revisionism, don't let it confuse you. This revisionist Marxism, as I'm going to tell you the story today, is more or less very specifically something that has its moment between 1956 and 1968. Um, we're going to be continuing the theme that we started last week with Kozhev's reading of Hegel's master-slave dialectic, of go a going back of these generations and a rereading of Hegel now through existentialist lenses. So we're going to kind of go back in various ways and reread Hegel through Heidegger and through Sartre. We're going to reread Marxist Hegelianism through existentialism. And so there are going to be various syntheses that come up from that. Um, the background here, the historical background that's kind of always lurking as the context for everything that everybody says is, is Stalinism and Stalinist terror. And how was it possible that the kind of Marxism we were reading about in the Communist Manifesto in 1848 led us into these dungeons where people were being tortured into giving grotesque, elaborate, self-deprecating -de confessions to crimes they did not commit. Um, and you have just orgies of bloodlust and bloodshed. Uh, Stalinism kind of peaks in some sense in the Soviet Union in the mid-1930s, in particular in the infamous year 1937, but it's going to be replayed in Eastern Europe, in the countries that will become communist after the Second World War, in particular between 1948 and 1953. So the kinds of show trials, the performative show trials that you had in Moscow in the 1930s, you're now going to have performative show trials in Eastern Europe between 1948 and 1953. Um, there are now some really good films, both both feature films and documentaries about these show trials. So if you want to commune with Stalinist terror, um, I can recommend a few. Um, there is the classic um, interrogation with Kristina Yanda, which is a Polish film. Um, there's a new documentary that just came out about the Slonsky trial in Prague based on the discovery of footage of the trial that we hadn't realized had survived. It was done by a French director, and it's fantastic. I can recommend that. There's a feature film about the Milano Horakova trial, so if you want to commune with that moment. Uh, the language of the trials was very fantastical, and in order to really understand that kind of terror, you need to kind of commune with that fantastical language. People would get up there, and, and the judge would the judge would ask a question and the prosecutor would ask a question like, in your infinite hatred 
for the glorious, peace-loving people of the beautiful Czechoslovak Socialist Republic? Were there yet other ways in which you tried to sabotage their beautiful, peaceful future? And the defendant would answer, yes, in my infinite hatred for, like, you know, and so this, the kind of, of suspension of reason that one, that needed to occur in order to believe in the authenticity of those show trials is extreme. You know, and that extremity, you know, that, that absence of reason or the abdication of reason is going to underlie all of this philosophy. Because we're starting with a Marxism that was in principle all about reason and all about a scientific understanding of history and where it's going. And then you get this moment of terror that seems to involve the total suspension of any kind of reason whatsoever. You know, and this is what's going to be grappled with. Um, I, I didn't give you any really hardcore Stalinist text. Um, if the uh, Arthur Kessler's book, novel, Darkness at Noon, based on the Bukharin trial, would be the classic one, again, if you want to commune with that. I did, though, last week give you a short chapter from a very new book that takes you into you know, a 21st century version of that kind of terror. Um, and that's a, a chapter from the young writer Stanislav Aseyev's book, which came out in English last year with the title, um, the, the Torture Camp on Paradise Street. And that, you know, unfortunately is a book that was written about something that happened very, very recently. Um, Stas is a, a young writer. He's in his early 30s now. He was in his mid-20s when he was captured um, in Donbass in eastern Ukraine um, by, by a kind of combination of separatist and Russian soldiers and for two and a half years gruesomely tortured in this basement. Um, he was released on a prisoner exchange and then he wrote this book about his experiences and he was a philosophy student before this happened. And so the book, it's an extraordinary book. It's also a book that is in dialogue with many of these people we read. And the French existentialists were especially important to him. And there's one scene that he describes drawing on Sartre's idea of the gaze of the other. And this is this passage I gave you. I'll, I'll read this to you, to you here and it will, it will get us in the right realm of terror to talk about revisionist Marxism. Um, so this is, this is Stanislav Aseyev. There were 10 of us or so, and the man at the door was the one who had confiscated all my writings a year earlier and read my fairly restrained and brief essays about isolation, that's the prison he's in, in which I discussed the psychology of the guards and the prisoners. Out of the 10 of us, which also included former Ukrainian servicemen that by right should have been the objects of these people's most intense hatred, he chose to address me alone. Aseyev, he hollered, will I live to see the day when you are not here? Why did I, a journalist, annoy him in particular? For me, the answer was obvious. He could see himself reflected in my eyes. Having read my thoughts on the subject, he was presented with a portrait of himself every time we saw each other. Social mirroring was at play here in the sense that Jean-Paul Sartre described. A man discovers who he is through the experience of being seen by another. And it is only in the conscious gaze of another that one can see oneself as an executioner, not when the subject is screaming, moaning, or begging for mercy. These people are used to such things.
Okay, so that's, that's Stanislav Vaseyev. Let me, let me take you back now to Sartre. She, Sartre is still very much with us. Uh, he's this young writer from the far eastern mining region in Ukraine who is going through hell and he is thinking with Sartre and he's thinking with Camus. It's, it, it, it's beautiful and it's torturous. Um, okay, let me take you back to Sartre um, and the political polarization of the interwar years, the right and the left, and the fact that bourgeois liberal democracy sells out Czechoslovakia at Munich. When Neville Chamberlain comes to the Munich conference in September 1938 and agrees to give Hitler the Sudetenland, that western strip of Czechoslovakia that's inhabited largely by ethnic Germans, and Hitler says, you know, if you just give this to me, then everything will be fine and I'll like be satisfied and go home. And Chamberlain decides to do it and says, I bring you peace in our time. You know, famous, infamous last words. In English, we always say the appeasement at Munich. In Czech, the phrase is always the betrayal at Munich. Czechoslovakia was the only one of those new states created at the drawing table at Versailles after the First World War that maintains something like a functioning liberal democracy all the way through the interwar years. You know, they believed longer and worked harder at this idea that this British tradition, this French tradition, this Enlightenment tradition of liberalism was going to be their path. And then the liberal democracy sell them out at the Munich Conference. It's very important to understand the Stalinist experience that they have in Czechoslovakia, that sense of betrayal. Um, and then Stalin's Red Army is going to liberate Prague in 1945. And that contrast will be formative. It will be formative especially for the generation born in the 1920s who is coming of age at that moment. The fact that liberal democracy sold us out and Stalin liberated us. Um, in February 1945, the American president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Stalin met at Yalta and essentially agreed to divide Europe into spheres of influence. Um, this is how, this is the prelude to the Iron Curtain by which Europe is divided into you know, a more or less liberal democratic half and a half that is the communist bloc that is not part of the Soviet Union but is under the domination of the Soviet Union. Okay. There's a kind of liminal period between 1945 when the Nazis are defeated and 1948 where it's unclear exactly how this is going to look. Um, by 1948, basically Stalinist regimes have consolidated themselves throughout Eastern Europe, throughout the communist bloc. And then you have this replay, essentially, of 1937 in the Soviet Union. You now have this replay in Eastern Europe with mass arrest, with mass terror, with imprisonments, with torture, with executions, with show trials. The replay of these show trials. And the fact that you could replay them, you know, is a subject I want to get back to at the end. Okay. Now you see in Sartre's writings, you know, even in his 1946 existentialism as a humanism, you see a sympathy for Marxism, for the Russian Revolution, together with an inability to really completely take that leap and join the party. You know, he is a post-war so-called fellow traveler. He is a sympathizer. He's not a party member. Um, and he's a Stalinist apologist. He is going to not speak out against the Stalinist terror even as it affects 
his colleagues and his fellow writers in Eastern Europe because at a moment when the world is divided into two halves, you can't betray the Soviet Union because that's our only hope. Um, now, he'll later, by the time we get to 1960, he really will go more and more to openly embrace Marxism. His 1960 critique of dialectical reason begins with an embrace of Marxism as the one philosophy of our life we cannot go beyond. I consider Marxism to be the unsurpassable philosophy of our time. And existentialism is here to kind of fill in the gaps, you know, where Marx doesn't really have things to say about this. So Sartre is going to kind of move as he moves out of the war from this radical existentialist position of radical freedom more and more towards Marxist determinism. At the very same time, his East European philosopher friends and colleagues are going to move in the opposite direction they're going to move from fanatical belief in Marxist determinism, from commitment to Stalinism, more and more towards an existentialist position. And they're gonna kind of meet at some point in the middle, in the 60s. Um, and that dialogue between Satra um, and, and the East European Marxist philosophers is going to be at, 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 at the core of the revisionist Marxist project. Um, I, I should add as a little bit of an aside, Georg Lukács, who we had read before, um, the great Hungarian Marxist philosopher, who is, illuminates, illuminates the Hegelian essence somehow in Marxism better than any of the other, I think any of the other Marxists I know. His, his history and class consciousness remains kind of classic. And when he sees, when he, when, when he looks at this potential dialogue between existentialism and Marxism, his whole attitude towards phenomenology and the existentialism that grows out of it is like, no, 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 that's cheating. It's like philosophy is, is the, the problem of the bridge remains the problem in philosophy. And the deal is you either start with the object and you work your way back to the subject. You know, and that's Marx. Or you take the idealist position. You start with the subject and you try to work your way out to the object. But this whole idea of in the beginning is the relationship we start with intentionality. No, 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 that's cheating. No hedging your bets and starting in the middle. You've got to make a choice. You either start with the object or you start with the subject and work your way back to the other one. Um, and it's actually, it's, it's very sarcastic and Lukács is also sarcastic, but it's a very clear critique of phenomenology. So for those of you who are struggling and want some clarifying sources, it's actually a very useful essay in that sense. He's like, there's no third way. You've got to make a choice. It's a kind of Kierkegaardian either or. Um, okay. Um, I, I just want to emphasize one more time the sheer scale of the Soviet experiment. Nobody had ever attempted on this scale to re-engineer human beings this way. I mean, to, to penetrate into their souls and create a new kind of person in a new kind of society, you know, to, to bring in a new world across such a huge chunk of the globe at once. So the Soviet Union is a huge, huge country. Um, and that kind of social engineering attempt, as I said, we're still, to this day, we have not yet grappled with the sheer scale of the experiment and the sheer scale of, of the failure, of the catastrophe. We're still 
in that space of trying to come to terms with what it meant and what its results were. Um, Stalin dies in 1953. You knew eventually he was going to die. This is comforting for people. I, years in the 1990s when I was a graduate student running around Warsaw, I met uh, a Trotskyite named, named Ludwig Haas who was, was sentenced during the Stalinist terror and spent 17 years in the Gulag and actually survived. I mean, survived like in, in weak health and with various disfigurations, but survived. Um, and I, when I met him at this tiny little rundown apartment he was living in in his old age in Warsaw, you know, I said, how did you, all those years, I mean, all those years in the Gulag, how did you get through it? And he said, I told myself, someday he will die. <laughs> Everybody dies. Someday Stalin will die. I knew he would die eventually. Um, and I will outlive him. And he did. He did. He outlived him by a lot. Um, so Stalin dies in 1953. If you want to commune with the death of Stalin, there's actually this very dark British comedy called The Death of Stalin, which is political satire that came out a few years ago. Um, I was very skeptical of it in the beginning, but there's, actually, there's something there's actually something to it that could be useful. I, I, I did a public discussion about it when it was first screened in San Diego. It took me a while to like make that leap that because it was done in British English, I thought these guys aren't speaking British English. But like after like half an hour, I accepted the imaginative leap that you know Stalin and his circle were speaking British English. Um, okay, so there, there's a sense of, and then there's a, a period of of kind of paralysis and mourning, and it's unclear what Stalin's death will mean or who will take power. And so I'm gonna jump you ahead because in some ways the really critical moment, in intellectual history at least, is not March 1953 when Stalin dies, but it's February 1956 when his successor, Nikita Khrushchev, gives a speech at the 20th Party Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which will forever after be referred to as Khrushchev's secret speech, usually capital S, you know, capital S. Um, now, the irony here is that it wasn't really secret for you know, more than an hour or two. I, mean, I think copies of it you know, made their way into publication abroad within 24 or 48 hours. But it was originally a speech given to a closed session you know, of the, the Communist Party, you know, and in that speech, Khrushchev, which if you read it today, and it's, you can pull it up online, it's easily available in translation, doesn't sound as radical as it felt at the time. What he said was under Stalin, there were excesses. There were some distortions. There were some errors. I mean, he doesn't say that the whole thing, you know, was, was a, a catastrophic failure that we were living under the reign of terror of a madman. No, he doesn't say that. He says, he doesn't say that all of those people who were killed, you know, that was all a mistake. He says, well, maybe there were some excesses. Maybe at the margins, maybe they weren't all entirely guilty. You know, maybe like, maybe there were some things that weren't done completely. You know, and there was this distortion of Marxism-Leninism through a cult of personality. And the idea that you would even raise the issue of a cult of personality or that there had ever been an error, that there had ever been a distortion, 
that any of these people who were purged did not, by the iron laws of historical necessity, need to be purged. That was earth-shattering for the communist, for the believers, because Stalin had been infallible. And Stalin had been the embodiment of history with a capital H as it kind of came through human being. There's this, there's this moment in, in, Sla, in one of Slavoj Žižek's books where he describes the difference between, between Stalin and, and Hitler or some other fascist leader. And he says the whole difference between the Stalinist leader and the fascist leader can be discerned in a tiny but significant detail. When the fascist leader finishes speaking and the crowd applause, the fascist leader acknowledges himself as the addressee of the applause. Whereas the Stalinist leader also applauds because the true addressee of the applause is not himself, but that great God of history whose humble servant he is. You know, Stalin was the embodiment of history and its iron laws. You know, and now he's going to become a fallible human being in Khrushchev's speech. And this was devastating. The Polish communist leader, Bolesław Beirut, who went there, died 10 days later. I mean, of, like, of a shock or a stroke, or like people couldn't believe that such a thing could happen. Um, Satra's going to later describe it as electric shock therapy. And it leads to then rehabilitations of those who were purged. You know, so people start coming out of prison. Um, people who were executed start having the verdicts of their trials overturned. Now, of course, it's very debatable what rehabilitation means when it comes after the fact of someone's execution. You know, it's a kind of posthumous rehabilitation. The other thing the Communist Party did, which, is, which gives you insight into how people felt about it, but it's very creepy, they would, as these rehabilitations began under Khrushchev, they would also restore posthumously somebody's Communist Party membership card. So the next of kin could have their executed husband or wife or child restored to good standing as a member of the Communist Party. And people were enormously grateful because that was everything. To be a communist was your all-encompassing identity. Okay, all right. Um, so what happens afterwards? Um, what happens afterwards is a rethinking of Marxism. And the short version of the, the complex process that I'm gonna spend the next 25 minutes or so talking to you about is that, okay, you've gotta put aside Stalin. It turns out that Stalinism was a distortion. It was an error, it was a kind of wrong path. Yeah. It, it, was, it was a cult of personality that was, in effect, a deviation from what should have been authentic Marxism-Leninism. So you put aside Stalin. Well, what do you do? You go back to Lenin. At a certain point, you're going to start to get suspicious that maybe the roots of Stalinism were really already present in Lenin. So you put aside Lenin. You go back to Marx. And then you start thinking that maybe the problem Maybe the problem with the Leninist reading of Marx was that 
There was too much focus on the later Marx, who seems very deterministic, and not enough appreciation for the writings of the earlier Marx, of the younger Marx, who seems more concerned with this problem of alienation and how it could be overcome through what the revisionist will call praxis, and I'll get to that in a few minutes. Um, and then you go back and you reread Hegel. And then you go back and you reread Hegel through Heidegger and Sartre. That's the basic process. That's the basic methodology you know, of, of revisionist Marxism. You're kind of peeling off layers of an onion. But the idea is that if there was an error, if there was a distortion, if something went wrong, the answers must be in Marx himself. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You go back and you read Marx again, and again, and again, and you read more carefully. And you read for the things you missed, and you read for the things you were insensitive to. But it, it's like a kind of, you know, it's like a devout Christian rereading the Bible. Like if something went wrong, the answers must be in the text, and you keep going back to the text. I mean, this idea that, that Marxism itself was still the most beautiful, liberating idea humanity had ever found. And so if something went wrong, then there was some kind of fault in the blueprint, but the answers are still there in the sacred text. And we're gonna find them. Um, and the, the short version of where we get to philosophically is that the revisionist Marxist philosophers who are essentially former Stalinist rethinking their own understanding of Marxism, they're going to try to figure out where is that boundary between historical determinism and individual responsibility. Every, all the questions they're asking are basically a variation on that. Because you're in this problem that, you know, when all of these people were cheering for the executions of their friends. They were doing so because they believed those purges were necessary in the name of the iron laws of history, which were leading us to a beautiful, glorious future for all humankind. But if those iron laws of history were not so iron after all, if there were actually more space for human agency, well, then that means we have blood on our hands. So exactly how much space for human agency was there? You know, where do you draw that line? Where is the realm of determinism? Where is the realm of contingency and choice? Where is the realm of teleology? Where is the realm of subjectivity? So we're back to the same kind of issues that we started the class with. But now they're going to have a particular moral urgency. Um, because where you put that line determines how guilty how guilty you are. Okay. Um, the, I'm going to take you through a handful of thinkers um, who were revisionists. The, the Czech philosopher Karl Kosik, uh, the Polish philosopher Leszek Kołakowski, and a group of Yugoslav philosophers around a journal called Praxis. Um, and Kołakowski will be one of the first people to say that we have to find a place in Marxism for individual choice 
and moral values. We accept, he says, the opinion that people are the sole creators of values, and we affirm this despite any espousal or negation of a deterministic view of the world. So you're not throwing out historical determinism, but you're trying to kind of inject it with a more robust subjectivity, and there's a tension here. There's, um, Nobody, Kowakowski will say, is free from responsibility because his individual actions constitute only a fragment of the historical process. It's not true, he says, that the philosophy of history determines our main choices in life. Our moral sensibility does this. We are not communist. And Kowakowski's writing this as he's 30 years old at the time. He was born 27. We are not communists because we have cognized communism as historical necessity. We are communists because we have joined the side of the oppressed against the oppressors, the side of the poor against their masters, the side of the persecuted against their persecutors. Now, this is not such an easy position to take because remember, Marx's whole idea, Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto, they cannot stand the sentimental utopian socialist. They don't like the people who say, wouldn't it be nice if, wouldn't it be kinder if. No, they cognize, you know, Marx and Engels lay out in the Communist Manifesto a prophecy and philosophy of history in which the coming about of communism is historical necessity. It's not about sentimentality. It's not about personal moral choices. It's scientific socialism. It's historical necessity. And now Kowalkowski is going to say no. No, 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 we're here. We have chosen this because we are joining the side of the oppressed against the oppressors. Moreover, if we throw out Marxism, we have nothing. If we throw out Marxism, looking back you know, at the hell and the devastation and the millions and millions of lives lost in the Second World War, we have no solution to anything. That was our only hope, it was our only way forward. Um, what comes back are some new terms including alienation, you know, alienation coming back from Marx, and now we're, now we're going to relook at alienation and say, okay, under Stalinism, we did not resolve the problem of alienation. If anything, it was alienation on steroids. If anything, alienation was exploded to a kind of hitherto unimaginable extent. Now let's go back and see if we can understand what did Marx really mean by that problem of alienation, and how did communism as it was practiced lead us to a new unprecedented form of alienation. Um, this is gonna be the jumping off point of the Praxis group in Yugoslavia, um, who were a, grew a circle of Yugoslav philosophers around the journal Praxis, um, more or less between 1964 and 1974, who were going through this process of sifting through the layers, putting aside St Stalin, going back to Lenin, putting aside Lenin, going back to the mature Marx, putting aside the mature Marx, going back to the younger Marx. Um, and they, they come up with some concrete ideas, you know, one of which has to do with the focus on worker self-management of factories. But their real preoccupation is how to overcome alienation through praxis. And the idea is that if man is to become de-alienated, he has to be performing and acting in a, in a kind of self-fulfilling way, you know, doing actions that are 
motivated by one's own choices to some extent. Um, and they're going to almost fetishize this word, praxis. So here, let me, so praxis is, again, it's one of these philosophical words that it basically means practice or action or doing as opposed to just thinking, but it has a kind of philosophical oomph to it. And what it really is is the kind of action that is theoretically informed, existentially fulfilling, um, de-alienating. So you throw a lot of kind of existential baggage on this idea of praxis and alienation. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to read to you from the from uh, Mikhail Markovich and his retrospective on the, uh, the Praxis group. The fundamental philosophical assumption implicit in this problem is that man is essentially a being of praxis. That is a being capable of free creative activity by which he transforms the world, realizes his specific potential faculties and satisfies the needs of other human individuals. Praxis is an essential possibility for man, but under certain unfavorable historical conditions, its realization may be blocked. This discrepancy between an individual's actual existence and potential essence, that is between what he is and what he might be, you see Sartre here, that kind of, that for itself, the going beyond, that discrepancy is alienation. The basic task of philosophy is to critically, it's to critically analyze the phenomenon of alienation and to indicate practical steps leading to human self-realization, to praxis. So you see here echoes of Sartre's idea of the in itself and the for itself, of facticity and transcendence, that de-alienating involves some kind of transcendence, involves some kind of going beyond. Okay, what they're going to call this overall, this, this wave of revisionism, is Marxist humanism. Can we work our way towards the Marxist humanism? And what you're really trying to do is you're trying to inject Marxism with a more robust subjectivity, with a fleshier subjectivity, you know, with a more morally inflected subjectivity, without throwing out the Marxism. Um, okay. Man is a being of praxis. In order to leave a de-alienated life, he must be transforming his reality. Authentic revolution has to involve the de-alienation of man. Now, you see echoes of Kojev here too, right? Ladone, the given. You know, and what is man? Man is negation of the given. So you're always, you're transforming. You're doing something. You're acting on the world. Um, what then constitutes revolution? Well, it's the possibility that man has of de-alienating himself that gives us a possibility for revolution. And Gaio Petrovich, um, who is another one of the Yugoslav philosophers, I think he writes about this most clearly, he says, only socialist revolution, which is directed not at the replacement of one form of exploitation by another more progressive, but at abolishing all forms of exploitation, at overcoming all forms of self-alienation in man, is a revolution in its deepest and fullest sense. Authentic revolution, Petrovich says, should abolish self-alienation by creating truly human society and truly human man. 
Revolution should be a word reserved for radical change, and only socialist revolution is de-alienated, you know, meaning making human man and society kind of revolution in the fullest sense. So you can also see echoes of Simone de Beauvoir's idea of transcendence, you know, to go beyond, to become a full subject, a full agent, you know, a full person taking responsibility and able to affect change and transform the world and not just an object that is active upon. Um, the Praxis Group establishes something called the uh, Korčula Summer School, which was held every summer in the small Croatian town of Korčula from 69 to 72. Um, and lots of famous people like Marcuse and Heidegger showed up there. It's a summer school I always regret having missed. I wasn't born at the time, but it was a kind of legendary place in this very beautiful place in Croatia by the sea. Um, okay. Uh, let me now move you on to Czechoslovakia. So in February 1948, when the communists take power in Czechoslovakia, um, they take power to tremendous popular enthusiasm. In Czechoslovakia, the communists win 38% of the vote in authentically free elections in 1946. Um, that's not the majority, but it is a plurality. It's more than any other single party gets. And Milan Kundera, who was part of this generation of young Stalinists who were, came of age um, during the Second World War and under the impression of the betrayal at Munich, he writes about this communist takeover. He says, and so it happened in February 1948 that the communists took power, not in bloodshed and violence, but to the cheers of about half the population. And don't forget, he said, the half that cheered was the more dynamic, the more intelligent, the better half. Um, his contemporary, Karl Kosick, was another one of the young Stalinists who came of age under the impression of the Munich Conference in the Second World War. And Kosick is writing about the Slonsky trial um, in December 1951 as a young writer. He says, only cosmopolitan bandits and evildoers of the likes of Slansky and company, whom the people have cast out of their midst, could have dared to reach out against our alliance with the Soviet Union, could have attempted to make impossible our people's full approach towards the inexhaustible experiences of the Soviet Union in all realms of human knowledge and human activity. Um, this generation is going to be very, very reluctant to de-Stalinize. You know, when, other, when in other countries people start taking down the Stalin statues, at least quietly after March 1953, they don't in Czechoslovakia. But after February 1956, the intellectuals are forced to get together and have a conference by Khrushchev's secret speech. Um, in 1956, there's a Congress of the Czechoslovak Writers Union, and these writers get up there and say, hey, my generation, we grew up with Stalin's name. And my best friends, they went to their deaths in the Nazi concentration camps with Stalin's name on their lips. And now you're telling me, well, no, I'm not going to apologize. I'm not ashamed. There's a tremendous resistance. Um, and it's going to really take, it's going to take a long time for those writers and those philosophers and those thinkers to find their way to a language outside of Stalinism by which to critique Stalinism. 
because it turns out to be impossible to articulate a critique of Stalinism within Stalinist language, which was literally all they had. And they start by juxtaposing words with other words, and they draw on existentialism. They start taking, they start taking language from Heidegger, they start taking language from Sartre, um, and they start they start taking things like class consciousness and juxtaposing it with conscience. They start taking things like the people as a singular collective and start replacing it with people as the plural of persons. Um, they start talking about things like, they start putting aside the concrete and objective truths and talking about responsibility. And then a younger generation comes up by the early 60s and looks at these writers, you know, who were born in the 20s and says, what kind of people were you that you just let your friends and colleagues go to these torture chambers and be hanged in the trials and cheered about it? What kind of people were you and what kind of people are you? And then the self-criticism starts, and then, then Ladislav Monatsko, one of them, got up there and said, listen, all of us sitting here in this room, all of us at one time or another, as our friends were being arrested and purged, all of us shouted, sat here and shouted, stone them. Well, now we have to have a conversation about why that happened and why we did that and who we are. Um, and Karl Kosick is going to become the most kind of philosophically articulate um, of that. And he is going to come up with, in some ways, the most robust version of revisionist Marxism, which is essentially based on a very intense rereading of Marx and Hegel through Heidegger. Um, and this idea that we are always already thrown into history, and history has its own momentum, but we're also up to stuff and involved in it. So you're getting, you're, it's, it's an embed, we are always already embedded in history, but it's an interactive model. So you're moving to an interactive model between the individual and history. He's searching for a space within morality, for, for morality within Marxist dialectics. Um, he's asking whether resolving the problem of economic relations really resolves all the problems of humankind. Um, and he's asking about the moral consequences of historical determinism. And he says, from the moment when these historical deterministic factors with fatal unavoid unavoidability and an iron law steer history towards a certain goal, we are immediately in conflict with the issue. How is it possible to harmonize this inexorability with human endeavor and with the meaning of human activity in general. This antinomy between the laws of history and human history has not been resolved satisfactorily. Um, that if we render ourselves mere objects of the iron laws of history, then we abdicate moral responsibility. And so, without dispensing with historical determinism entirely, we need to find a way to have an interactive model. And he goes back to this problem of the suspension of reason under Stalinism and the suspension of reason under the show trials. In 1967, he gives a talk at a writer's con uh, congress called Reason and Conscience in which he tells the tale of a certain religious reformer who is obviously Jan Hus, um, who was burned at the stake in 1450, which the, his audience would have recognized. Um, and he says, he, he tells this tale of a certain religious reformer who is advised while he was in prison 
that should the ecclesiastical council come, come and visit him in prison and tell him that he only had one eye. He was obliged to admit and acknowledge that the council was correct. Whatever they told him he should say. And the imprisoned man allegedly replied, he knew by his own reason that he had two eyes and a denial of reason was a betrayal of conscience. This idea that a denial of reason was a betrayal of conscience became a way into examining the behavior of the show trials. At the, the trial of Rudolf Slonsky and contemporaries um, in, in December 51, I think was, maybe 52, I'm now forgetting, but I think it was December 51, um, Otto Katz, who was one of the defendants, he was a high-ranking Communist Party member, got up and gave a closing statement or a final statement at which he demanded for himself the highest punishment. People kept pleading to be executed and to sacrifice their lives and to repent for the party. He gave, he gave, a, a, he gave a closing statement that was taken almost verbatim from author Kessler's book, Darkness at Noon, which itself was a kind of revelation and exposure of the Bukharin trial, in particular in the show trials in general, um, in Moscow in the 1930s. This, this statement and the way of speaking and the, the embracing of one's own execution was too fantastical to be believed in Moscow in the 1930s. Kessler exposes it in the meantime. That book is translated into lots of different languages. Uh, Autocat spits it back out in Prague in 1952, and they buy it, and they hang him. You know, and now Kosick is saying a denial of reason is a betrayal of conscience. How could we have done this? Um, the loss of the unity of reason and conscience, he says, brings us to nihilism. It brings us to nothingness. And the devastating thing here about existentialism is that if then we were not mere objects of historical determinism, then we all have blood on our hands because we all cheered for these executions. Um, Kosick's colleague, Ludwig Vatsili, gets up at that same conference and says, and addresses both his fellow writers and the Communist Party leadership who's in the room. And Vatsili says, listen, just for a moment, I want to speak to you all here as, as not as Communist Party officials, but as individual persons with thoughts and feelings. And I, I want to say to you now that if you were today to come to us, the writers, and ask us the question, can it be done? Can that beautiful Marxist dream be realized? then I would have to answer with the utmost of goodwill and the highest civic virtue, I just don't know. And that admission of doubt, that admission of doubt in the iron laws of history became the most radical statement. You know, Vatsilik was immediately thrown out of the party. There's a famous scene where the Communist Party leader, Novotny, gets so furious that he tries to storm out of the room, but there's like a curtain that's kind of serving as a door, and he gets tangled in the curtain, which ruins his storming out moment. Okay. Um, uh, I only have two minutes left, so. I want you to have this idea of 
Revisionist Marxism most importantly tries to inject Marxist Hegelianism with a more robust subjectivity. It's obsessed with the question of the relationship between determinism and responsibility and where it draws that line. And it comes out with a Heideggerian philosophy of embeddedness. We are always already embedded in history. History, how, we're, we, are, we don't act from a tabula rasa, you know, we don't act in a frictionless world, we are shaped by history, but we're also doing the shaping. There's an interaction. It's, it's an embedded model. Um, at a certain moment in Czechoslovakia, after all these writers being thrown out of the party at the 1967 Congress, things go the other way. Novotny is deposed. Um, the leader, Alexander Dubček, comes in power and embraces these ideas of revisionist Marxism. And there is a moment in Czechoslovakia in the spring and summer of 1968 where the Communist Party leadership and the intellectuals are in alliance. There are rehabilitations that are now open and public of the people who were purged, and there is an attempt to build what is called socialism with a human face. And there's tremendous popular enthusiasm. There is a belief that this third way, you know, a Marxist humanism, a de-alienating Marxism, a socialism with a human face can be realized, that it can be done. Whether or not it can be done or could have been done, we will never know because in August 1968, Soviet officially Warsaw Pact tanks came into Prague you know, and violently put down that experiment. And that was the end of the Prague Spring. It was also the end of Marxism in Eastern Europe in a kind of, as, a, as a profoundly lived and believed in and passionately felt philosophy. You know, communism and practice continued there for another two decades, but those Soviet tanks, ironically, are what killed Marxism there. Um, Afterwards, people like Karol Kosik and Ludwig Watzlik, who had been in Milan Kundera, who had been the fanatical young Stalinist, and then the critical revision of Marx, uh, Marxist, are going to become the dissidents and emigres of the 70s and 80s. And I'll, I'll end by telling you one story. So Karol Kosik in 1975 was working on this very long manuscript, actually two manuscripts that went together on truth and on praxis. Now this was before computers, they had no copy machines. He only had the one copy of his manuscripts. There were a thousand pages of his manuscripts in which he had only one copy. And the secret police came and they searched his apartment and they confiscated the manuscripts. And Kosick was distraught. He didn't really care what happened to them, but at all costs he wanted the manuscripts back. They represented years of work and he only had that one copy. At a loss as to what to do, Kosick writes to Satra, um, who then publishes a supportive re response in Le Monde, but obviously Satra had no power actually over the communist secret police in Czechoslovakia. Milan Kundera then turns around and tells this story in the New York Review of Books, and he says, you know, at a loss as to what to do, Kosick wrote to Satra. In those days, that was an intellectual's last resort. You can write to Satra. And Kundera says, and when Satra died, there was no longer anyone to whom you could send such a letter. <laughs> okay, I'll see you on Wednesday. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.